like to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Matthew. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 this morning. This morning we're going to look at an old familiar story of an infant born of glory. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. God come down to us. And what I want to do this morning is very, very simple. I want us to gather around and lean in and hear the story of who Jesus is and why he came. I want to behold Jesus together this morning, considering his might and his glory and his humility and his love and his presence and his peace. Last week, Pastor J.D. brought up some questions that come from hard times in our life. Questions like, God, if you're good, why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Why did this person have to die? God, if you're good, why did this? And insert whatever bad thing you want. For me personally, that time of most doubt and my faith came after my 15-month appointment to Afghanistan. I came home and I was filled with this rage and left to wonder why I had made it home from Afghanistan and my friends didn't. Of course, I didn't have an answer for those questions at that time. And it was only through reading the book of Job that I understand the sovereignty of God and that he is Lord and I am not. That he is infinitely greater than I and who am I to question the Lord? For these questions, we understand that bad things happen to good people because of sin. That when Adam and Eve fell, the earth was cursed and as Paul puts it in Romans, all creation has been groaning waiting for our redemption. We can never and will never understand the ways of God, but we can look into this passage as proof that he has not left us, nor has he forsaken us. While we may never have all the questions surrounding suffering answered, we do know that because of what we celebrate as Christmas, that one day there will be an end to all suffering. The birth of Christ is the promised sign that he is with us. It's an unmistakable sign that God has not and will not abandon us, though there will be times in our lives that we will never understand, and that's simply okay. As we see in our passage today, Joseph clearly didn't understand the events happening at this time in his life. And it's awesome to me that when life doesn't make sense, when it's hard and confusing, confusing, and even more so when it's painful, It's comforting to know that God hears our groans and he sees our tears. And better yet, he has an answer for them. That even though you and I by our sin declared war on God, he responded by sending a baby. It is to this shocking answer that we look now. It is more than we thought possible and everything we are in such desperate need of. You see, he is God. He is man. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. Look now to our scripture. Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that we are not alone, that we haven't been forsaken or abandoned, Lord. That you gave up the glories of heaven to come down to us here on earth, Lord. And that you wrapped yourself in the frailty of human flesh, that we may be saved from our sins, Lord. Lord, be with us this morning as the message goes out, Lord. Use me as you see will, as you see fit, Lord. I pray all these things in your blessed and holy name. Amen. So for our first point today, I want to look at how Jesus is God. See, having the privilege of growing up in this country is that you might be exposed or have been exposed to the Christmas story time and time again. But being exposed to the Christmas story time and time again can lead to a complacency in understanding the impact of the incarnation of Christ. I encourage us to dig deep into what the scripture is showing us. That this baby growing in Mary's womb is not just another baby born long ago. This baby that is growing in her womb is divine. Notice how in verse 18 the scripture plainly tells us, Now the birth of Christ Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Notice there, by the Holy Spirit. And again in verse 20, as the angel of the Lord tells Joseph, the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The distinction of these words is so heavy from the Holy Spirit. This is an important distinction that Jesus has no earthly father. Therefore, does not have original sin and is not born with sin nature that has been passed down through Adam. Being a father of six I understand that birth is always something to marvel at. But this is something that can never and will never be repeated. This child conceived by the Holy Spirit is divine and is the embodiment, embodiment of what John 1.14 tells us. And the word became flesh. This means to the people in this day that God is coming and to us that he has come. We must also, also consider Joseph and what an earth-shattering discovery this must have been for him. See, Joseph, see, Matthew calls Joseph a just man, and his betrothed wife was just found to be with child before he knew her. See, if you read Luke's account, she was off visiting her cousin Elizabeth for three to four months, depending on which uh, scholar you read, which, which timeline lay, lay out for her. And then she comes back, and she's been discovered with child. For Joseph to be a just man, though, he must have feared God and followed the law closely. See, in this day, betrothal lasted a year, 
and intimacy between those that were betrothed was considered immoral. And in order to separate from Mary, it would have taken an official divorce decree. This isn't in like a modern day engagement where Joseph can simply part ways for her, with her and have nothing to do with her. He would have to have seeked an uh, official divorce decree at that time. Therefore, it's not uncommon for them to also be called husband and wife. Joseph could have been well with under his rights also under the law to put her to death by stoning. Because during this time, it would have been considered adultery. What Joseph does next is a lesson for another time. But in short, he chooses restraint and mercy seen in his unwillingness to put her to public shame. He instead waits and God intercedes on his and Mary's behalf. The angel of the Lord comes to him and opens his eyes to the truth that the baby was not from man, but from God himself. Understand what the angel of the Lord is telling Joseph, that the creator of all, the sustainer of all, the one who is above everything, the one who is over everything, has humbled himself to come down to earth in the form of a human baby. The incarnation means that glorious God came down to us in the form of man called Jesus. And this is what skeptics in the world find so difficult to accept, that Jesus is God. It's easier for most people to think of him as some kind of semi-God or something like God but less than God, a good teacher, a prophet, a good man, some outright deny his existence. But I mean, how could glory like that inhabit flesh like ours? Many skeptics try to say Jesus even never claims to be God in the scriptures. But if we take a quick look at what the Bible says about him, we will see just for starters a few of these things. John equated and identified Jesus with God in John 1, 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as only of the one, as only of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul confessed Christ as God in Colossians 2, 9. For in him the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. The author of Hebrews exalted Jesus as God in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus himself spoke of the glory he shares with the Father. In John 17.5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I have with you before the world existed. Previously in John 10.30, Jesus identified himself with God as God when he said, I and the Father are one. In John 14.1, Jesus called people to believe in God, believe also in me. No wonder the Jewish leaders charged him with blasphemy. John, and that's in John 5.16-17. He proclaimed himself equal with God because he was, because he is God. See, they wouldn't have, have gathered around and tried to stone him and do all these other things and put him to death if he wasn't claiming to be God. That is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't find acceptable in that day, is that he would declare himself the same and equal to God. That was a blasphemy that they just would not stand. 
And they would not have done those things if God in Scripture himself didn't testify of himself as God. Jesus also told Thomas that to know him is to know the Father, John 14, 6 and 9. And he said, no one can come to the Father except through him, John 6, 44. He claimed the same knowledge of God and as God in Matthew eleven twenty seven, when he said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The birth of Jesus is not about another baby born in humble beginnings who grew into merely some great teacher or a great healer or a great orator or a great leader. Christmas is about the glory of God coming down from heaven to save his people from their sins. It is the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, as Revelation 1.8 puts it. That's who Jesus is. In Jesus, God came into the world, and Joseph was to be his father. Of course, not in the traditional sense. Traditional sense he was to be his adoptive father. This is kind of a, a role reversal of sorts here. Notice that Joseph did not choose to be the father of the incarnate God. Joseph could never and would never have chosen Jesus. Instead, Jesus chose him. The child adopted the father. This is the way God works. Starting way back in the Old Testament, Jesus chose a family for himself to whom he would come one day. He chose the line of David. In the same way God chose to call Abraham or chose Jacob over Esau, God calls who he wishes to fulfill his plan and sees to it that nothing is left to chance or circumstance. He is sovereign over all things to include his birth, and his earthly parents. So why did God choose Joseph? Because way back in 2 Samuel 7, God promised King David that one of his sons would rule forever. And the angel calls Joseph a son of David. In other words, Joseph had the lineage of God's promise, had the lineage God promised to bless. More was at stake with Joseph accepting God's call than another child being born into the world. This was the everlasting king promised long ago, coming to rule as foretold. This was God coming to his people to fulfill his promises. This was God being God, coming, speaking, choosing, acting, loving, and saving. This unexpected child turned Joseph's world upside down, and then he proceeded to turn the whole world upside down. The baby in the manger was the Lord of lords and the King of kings. The one, whom there was no, the one for whom there was no room in the end makes room in the heaven for sinners. This child was born like us, gave, this child who was born like us gave new birth that we may be like him. The boy in Mary's womb was the glory of heaven, and we have been, vis- and we have been visited not by a vision of God, not by an apparition of God, not even by a messenger of God, but by God himself. This, church, is the great hope in which we live. God has come. He has stepped into our mess, into our lives, into our very existence, into our hopelessness, and brought forth his light. 
He came to us to bring us to himself. And he did it not from heaven, but from earth. And it's to that we now turn as we look at Jesus is a man. So now that we've seen that he's come and that he is God and that he's declared himself God and he's declared himself equal to God, we will look and see his other half, that he is fully man. In verse 21, the angel told Joseph and Mary that she would bear a son. C.S. Lewis said this about the humility of God becoming a man. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not a man, but before that, a baby, and before that, a fetus inside of a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. See, Jesus is God, but he is also man. And at no point is Jesus ever less than God. Also, at no time since his incarnation is he not also a man. He is fully man, even as he is fully God. So we really need to understand how much he humbled himself in the very act of wrapping human flesh around his divine nature. That the God of Genesis 1-1 would enter this world as a man. And not only would he enter this world as a man, but he would also experience what it means to be human. His birth would be in the most humblest of conditions. One might expect the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to be born in the most magnificent palace or in today into the, the most exclusive hospital with the private ward sectioned off just for him. But as we know, this is not the way Jesus would enter the world. Spurgeon in his book, Joy to the World, says it like this. In the beginning, in being laid in a manger, he did, as it were, give an invitation to the most humble to come to him. We might tremble to approach a throne, but we cannot fear to approach a manger. Never could there be a more approachable than Christ. See, the king of kings wouldn't come into a palace, but he would come into a manger so that all might come to him. And not only would he come in humble beginnings, but he would grow up just like we did. His body would change and develop. He would mature. He would have to learn how to walk. He would have to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to do things for himself. He lived a human life just like you and I. He ate food. He drank water. He laughed. He felt the comfort of friendship. He experienced the joy of life at weddings and parties. And if you read the scriptures, his, his ministry started and his act started at a wedding where he turned the water into wine. But more than all these, these other things, he also experienced the pain of life. Think about that for a second. That you serve a God that has been through the same pain, hurt, and loss and so much more as you and as I. The Bible tells us that he was pressed by crowds and at the same time he was questioned by the religious leaders of the day. He was tired and he looked for rest. Remember when he goes out on the boat in the Sea of Galilee and a terrible storm comes, how tired he must have been that, that some of these disciples who had grown up on the water their whole life were feared and trembling, and Jesus slept in the boat. He was so tired. And they came to him and woke him, and he calmed the sea with his 
his words and he rebuked him. That is a man that is tired. He was tempted. He lost friends to illness and death. Remember the scripture tells us that he wept for Lazarus. He didn't just cry for him. He wept for Lazarus. More than that, he felt the betrayal of Judas' kiss upon his cheek. He bled. He felt the sting and the tearing of the whip on his back. He felt the nail being driven through his hands and his feet. And he died. He went through all of that. The only difference between your human life and his is that he never sinned. That doesn't mean we don't feel that he didn't feel the effects of sin. He certainly did. No more, no other place more than on the cross where he took upon himself the wrath of God for your sin and my sin was due. Jesus is God, but Jesus is also a man, fully both. That means God understands your life, He understands you. He's been in your shoes. He understands that when you cry out to him, he understands that when you cry out to him, that your pains and your sufferings, they're not lost on him. He's not some far off deity that has never walked in your shoes, that has never suffered as you suffer. I personally take great comfort in the fact that I may never know the suffering he did, and yet he calls on me to find rest in him. He even has a name like you. In verse 21, God gave Joseph the responsibility of naming his son. And you shall call his name Jesus. See, back then people didn't just get names arbitrarily get given to them. They meant something. And his meant the Lord saves. And you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. See, he was born with a purpose. And his name bore witness to it. He came to save his people. But what was he there to save them from? Most thought and his disciples thought he was there to save them from the Romans. God's people desperately sought freedom from Roman rule. For their suffering at the hands of the Romans was great. But if it wasn't for deliverance from the Romans... Maybe he was just there to save people from their sickness and disease. I mean, the crowd certainly followed him around clamoring for that, right? Everywhere he went, they pressed in on him, trying to see the show that was Jesus, trying to get something from him, trying to be saved of their ailments and their sicknesses, trying to be cleansed and to be purified of whatever disease that they had. But it wasn't for any of these things that he was there to do. He was there to save them from their sins. See, the greatest enemy to man is not anything, anything outside of themselves, not anything outside of us. It's who we are. It's the sin that we're born with. The most tragic thing about us is not that what happens to us, but what happens in us. And that's sin. That doesn't mean terrible things don't happen to us, because they do. It doesn't mean... But it does mean that we too are guilty of our own sin. 
And as much as we may need saving from all the terrible things in this world, so much more do we need salvation from ourselves and from our sins. Jesus came on a mission with a purpose to save. But why did God have to become a man to save us from our sins? He is God after all, right? Couldn't he save us without leaving heaven? Well, in Hebrews 9.22, the author tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, God instituted the sacrificial system in Israel to give them a pathway to forgiveness from sins by sacrificing bulls and goats. But in Hebrews 10.4, the author says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you understand that? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So why did God require the blood of animals in the first place if it would never take away our sins? Because it was pointing out to what was to come in Jesus. See, the Bible tells us that there is none, that there is none righteous. No, not one. And in that, the wages of our sin is death. But in God and his mercy provided a way and forgiveness in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, but it was only temporary. The blood of animals could never satisfy the penalty for our sin. Man's sin requires a man's blood. The only way our sins could be dealt with is if we shed our blood or if someone shed their blood for us. And obviously we weren't capable of being sinless. So Jesus gave his blood for ours. After living a perfect life that we could never live, he died a guilty death that he never deserved. And this death on a tree that he spoke into existence, Jesus credited us with righteousness. Think about that for a second. He spoke the very tree he was to be hung on into existence. And this is how he saved us from our sins. But that's not the only reason he came. He came for so much more. He came not just to redeem us from our sins, but to bring us peace between us and the Father. He came not just to deal with us, but to be with us. And that's our third point. That Jesus is Emmanuel. So if we look at verses 22 and 23, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is his name. The Lord saves. Emmanuel is his nature. God with us. Here's why this matters so much. At some point, we all ask, has God abandoned me? Sometimes we suffer so profoundly that we wonder if God has forsaken us. But look back at the scripture reading that we had this morning back in Isaiah chapter 7. We see King Isaiah face with a great threat of war from Syria and Ephraim. But instead of putting his faith and trust in God for salvation from his enemies, he looks towards the world for help and salvation. The king puts his faith in the Assyrians instead of God. 
the story you can find in 2 Kings 16, 1 through 9, and you'll find out that that king never followed God. Isaiah calls on the king to ask God for a sign to strengthen his faith. Isaiah even tries to steer the king to God in verse 11 when he says, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Meaning get your eyes off the world, get your eyes off what you can see, and think spiritually because your salvation isn't here. Instead, what does the king do? He mocks God with a false piety. Isaiah rebukes him in the nation and gives them the sign that they should have been looking for in verse 14. And this is the promised sign that we hold so dear. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the sign that we have fulfilled in Jesus, that he is not just our salvation, but that he is with us. That doesn't mean life is easy. It doesn't mean that we have, but it doesn't mean we don't have to live through trials and tribulations. We do. We will face trials and tribulations. The New Testament testifies to this constantly. It doesn't mean others won't seek to make trouble or war with us. Just look around. There's always wars and rumors of wars or trouble in your personal life. There's always somebody battling against us. It doesn't mean what's precious to us, precious to us isn't stolen. It certainly doesn't mean that we won't have to battle against our own flesh and our own sinful desires, as Paul puts it in Romans 7, verses 17 through 21. But through all of this, what it does mean is that you are not alone. That your salvation is not dependent on this world, what this world can give. It's not dependent on what you can achieve. It's not dependent on what you can get through your hard work and through your sacrifice. Your life is dependent upon a miracle, and that miracle's name is Emmanuel, and he has finished the work on the cross. It's so easy for us to believe in our sinful flesh that God is against us. He has every reason to be, doesn't he? Our sins are many. Our failures pile, pile up before us, testifying to our guilty status. But when we surrender to Jesus and take our eyes off what false security is in the world, we will find that he is not against us. But God with us, Emmanuel. I just want that to be settled in your heart today. For the Christian, God is with you. Jesus makes this a reality. Jesus is the guarantee of this salvation. He entered this, this very real world you and I live in right now. He came into this darkness. He came into this situation. He came into this difficulty. He came into this life of suffering. He came into this fallen world with its constant demands and never-ending criticisms and unwavering conflict. But Christian, Emmanuel, God is with you. God is with you so much that there is not a single second when he turns from you. He never gets weary of you. 
He hears your cries. He knows your need. He sees your sin. And instead of turning away, he comes to save and to dwell with you. He is your strength when you feel abandoned and alone. He is your defender when you are guilty. He alone is your justifier when you have no defense. He is your surety when there is only uncertainty. But he is certain that he who began a good work in you is faithful. Jesus is more than an action. He accomplishes salvation. He is also a presence with you always. Jesus came oh so humbly in order to be your savior. Isn't that amazing? If this wasn't our idea, it was his. We would never imagine such a thing. Us, peace with God. We, we think we need to earn him, but he gives himself to the undeserving. He didn't wait for us to come around. He didn't wait for our strength to compel him. He didn't measure our successes before stepping down from heaven. He came to our weakness and our failures and our unworthiness. He drove out our darkness and replaced it with his light. He made himself our friend when we were his enemy. He sustains our life, and he keeps doing it. In a way, this Christmas we are seeing in Matthew's gospel is only the start of many Christmases. Christmas should be the constant reality that Jesus is ever with us. We know this is true because of what Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel. What does he say? He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus didn't just come for a visit. He came for a lifetime. He came for your eternity. Still, perhaps we think we need to be a certain way. We need to act in a certain manner. Join a certain church. Follow a certain set of laws for Jesus to save us. But look at the line that Jesus comes from. They're not impressive moral specimens. Look how the Old Testament goes out of its way to tarnish all these heroes of the faith. They're murderers, they're adulterers, they're liars, they're backstabbers, they're lawless, they're sinful, they are guilty. Jesus himself said he came not for the righteous, but for the sinner. He didn't come for the well, but he came for the sick. All we need to have Jesus is a need. And our sin makes that one true need for his grace even more apparent. See, Jesus came for the lowly, for the lowly. He is with all who are weary and need rest, all who mourn and long for comfort, all who feel worthless, and, and even those that wonder if God even cares, all who are frail and desire strength, all who sin in our need of a savior. Never forget, he is Emmanuel, God with us. 
So in closing today, still we may wonder how this will all turn out. Won't we mess this all up? Will we? If left alone, we will fail every single time. But if we trust in Jesus and the work on our behalf and truly surrender to his lordship, we will see the good work that God began. He is faithful to complete. That his promises are sure. He will raise our dead body to new life at the end of this age. We will live and rule and reign with him forever. And not even our sin can overcome what Jesus has done. Because he died for our sin. He rose for our justification. He oversees our sanctification. And one day with him, we will receive our glorification. Not because we've earned or deserve it. Only because he is Emmanuel. And he will save his people from their sins. Let us pray.